This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. And we're recording. This is The Law School Show interview with Heather McLeod Kilmurray. Uh, I'm Jake Clark. Uh, Professor Kilmurray, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you, Jake? I'm going well. Um, this is this is being recorded in early April of 2020. So for whenever this comes out, we are right in the middle of the COVID quarantine right now. Hopefully in the middle. Yes, hopefully. And I think this is an interesting time as any to kind of talk to somebody who has done a lot of work at the intersection of law and a lot of other factors that are coming into play right now, namely things like ecology and intersectional social factors. But I, I'd kind of like to ask you first, for those who are not familiar with your work there, Professor McLeod Kilmarie, how did you come to the law? What is your uh, specialty, your interest? Uh, originally, I, what I always wanted to do was be a teacher. And in the end, I, I worked uh, for a little bit in, in summers just as a foot messenger in the old days, delivering mail, etc. for a law firm, just earned some money over the summers, and I got more interested. And when I got to law school, I, I absolutely loved the I thought I would like the history. I took political science in undergrad, so I thought I would like all of that, which I did. But what I loved the most was actually just the the whole idea of finding answers to questions, that no matter what the question, whether you knew any background or not, that it was this sort of mystery or detective skill of being able to find the answer to questions that people needed answers to. And I, I found that really exciting. So that was a thing that I that I really enjoyed. But then as I went through law school, it was always sort of the social justice issues like immigration law and, um, you know, labor justice issues and, and particularly environmental law were some of the areas that, that I really felt passionate about. I think that's very interesting sort of considering, um, I, I think what, one of your recent works is a food law textbook, which obviously must cover some... I'm going to say like a bundle of uh, legal issues that are maybe, to me anyway, seem, um, I have a hard time conceptualizing it. Could you sort of unpack that a bit? Food law. Yeah, it's a really exciting new area uh, that we're, we're having a lot of fun and certainly wasn't available when I was in law school. So um, myself and Professor Nathalie Chalifour from the uh, French common law section, we, we were both environmental lawyers in the Center for Environmental Law and Global Sustainability at the faculty. And we noticed that in a lot of papers that we'd been writing, just purely trying to tackle sustainability issues, that we were, it's almost accidentally writing a lot about food. So we wrote, she was writing a lot about sort of sustainable uh, agriculture, food additives and things like that. And I was writing about uh, GMOs and the climate and ecological justice issues around industrial factory farming. And so we decided to work together to look at sustainable food policies in Canada. And we found that we couldn't really find any, certainly at the federal level in, in law. And we went and presented this draft paper in the United States and they said, yeah, food law is a thing here. It's it just in the last 10 years, it's been growing because although in Canada, in other departments and other fields, there's been you know decades of research and advocacy in relation to food and its various branches from food justice, food sovereignty, a whole bunch of other things, food safety. There was almost nothing in the law other than that work by Professor Don Buckingham and also a little bit in Quebec. So we started writing some papers about that and we started thinking, hey, we should maybe have a conference on this and see what food law and then we got an invitation from the Dalhousie Law School saying that they were going to have the first ever food law 
conference in Canada. So we went to that about five years ago, and then we hosted the second one at Ottawa U. And now that group of people has created the Canadian Association of Food Law and Policy. And we, uh, myself and my PhD student, Angela Lee, three years ago, started teaching food law at Ottawa U, and it's the only course outside of Quebec. So the only course in any common law law school right now um, on food law. It seems like a very interesting course. When I saw it on the syllabus, like I, I used to work in an Italian restaurant, and I remember one early memory in my job was people talking about counterfeit olive oil, which is apparently quite a significant problem, especially in Italy. And that's kind of what I thought of. But the food sovereignty angle is a very interesting one uh, today. And I just kind of want to ask, sort of as, as a follow up to that, how do you see that playing out with uh, what we're looking at? Like right at the time of this recording, like with um, like the persistent like rush on every grocery store, like the definitely panic buying a lot of things and the whole questioning of whether or not the supply chain is going to break. Yeah, well, the the counterfeit olive oil that we do do a whole class and there's a there's a chapter in the book about food fraud and that is a big deal and it, it also comes back to breaches of legislation and also sometimes class actions and tort law. So that's it is a, a very recurring thing and it, it's a big thing with fish as well. Very interesting and interestingly, food fraud is one of the first concerns that people had like centuries ago. That was one of food safety and food fraud. I was very surprised to hear, but one of the biggest concerns, sort of in the early nineteen. So that was interesting. But yeah, much more interestingly and much more recently, this idea of how these crises affect our food system and is our food system well designed to deal with immediate short term critical emergencies like the pandemic that we're living through now? And is that also perhaps a microcosm into what could happen with longer term and more lasting challenges like climate change. So how is the dominant sort of international global industrial food system designed? Who does it benefit? What are its weak points, etc.? Those are issues that a lot of people from the municipal food council level through food activists all the way up to the federal and government and international lawmakers are, are grappling with right now. And one of the hopes is that the problems that we're seeing now in the immediate challenge of the pandemic will hopefully people will come up with medium and long-term solutions, not just immediate emergency responses that we need them, but that the responses will also include adaptive ways of changing the food system so that we do have more access to food, food security, food sovereignty in its various guises going forward. So what would adaptive change kind of mean from a legal perspective? So the interesting thing about food law is that it varies so much around the world. I mean, one thing, there's, there's, there's millions of issues, so I'll just handpick a couple of them. One of the things is how much food is controlled by big corporations, international, uh, you know, multinational corporations. So who, who does have the power to make decisions? Who controls the food system and can they adapt and what are their, their motivation? Is it different if you get most of your food from a giant multinational corporation or if you get it from within your close neighborhood or region? Does that make a difference to your food security, to your access to food, to your adaptability in relation to food? So those are some interesting questions. And food security. So it just puts such a strong highlight on the fact that food banks in Canada were designed as stopgap measures a few decades ago during another, that time, economic crisis to help people over the short term. And they've kind of become institutionalized as long-term solutions, which wasn't the original goal. And so now we see that 
with food banks, you know, with people not able to volunteer as much, particularly the elderly. One of my uh, colleagues, Mo Garahan from Just Food, was talking about this to me, that often many of the volunteers tend to be older people. They're not going to be available right now. People are having um, income problems, and so they're having a, less of a tendency to make their usual monthly donations to charitable organizations. And yet this is exactly the time when people are having greater, much more severe problems in terms of access to food. So is the food bank system, which again was intended as a short-term solution and has become institutionalized, is it something that we should be relying on on a permanent basis to try to help people get access to food in times of need, or, or does this highlight that we really need a better structure? So those are just two of some of the things that people have been talking about and, and thinking about. Those are the questions that at this point are transparently in need of being asked. I think so, among among many others, yeah. And uh, I, I think that it's it's interesting uh, who these questions are posed to, and I kind of want to talk about your your one L uh, course about this because I'm I'm in one L right now, and uh, I'm told that you bring in a lot of experts from um, differing fields uh, to share their perspective. And I, can I kind of ask about um, what are some of the most interesting or, or most maybe uh, viable takes that have been provided by this process? Sure. Well, one of the things we try to introduce students to early on are some of the actors in the system. So we have somebody come from the federal government. We have somebody come from the private sector from a big law firm. And then we have people come from the sort of food activist and NGO community to talk about those sort of varying perspectives and what they see as the leading issues or concerns um, in food law. But then we also have people talk from various perspectives. So from the point of view of Indigenous food systems, indigenous relationships with food and land, indigenous food sovereignty. Um, we were having Professor uh, Priscilla Seti from the University of Saskatchewan come to talk a bit about this. She's just published a new book called Indigenous Food Systems that's brand new. Uh, and then, well, because of the crisis, unfortunately, some of these didn't get to happen. But Bita, Professor Bita Amani from Queen's University is an expert in um, technology, but also feminist legal analysis. And she wrote a chapter in our book, and that was supposed to be one of our lectures this year, about gendered issues in food systems, local and global, and um, including uh, the technologizing and commoditization of food. So that was a really interesting one. And then I mentioned her already, Mo Garahan from Just Food in Ottawa. She just is such a wealth of knowledge on municipal and regional food systems. And she does a huge variety of work uh, with on-the-ground issues that people are dealing with in relation to food. So she came and spoke to me, and I think the students were particularly struck by the issues that she was talking about from the very, very small scale, even though something's very small and local, that it can be hugely important. And also she talked about how even at the UN, they're starting to gather experts in municipal food systems because they're finding that that's where a lot of the action takes place and trying to get municipal food actors together to compare and to share best practices and things like that. It's interesting you mentioned the municipal scale thing because one of the things that I'm I'm sort of reminded of talking, looking into um, sort of law and especially the way law is conceptualized around climate change, I'm really reminded of um, sort of Murray Bookchin style social ecology. Is that like a fair... Uh, analysis of this, because that's also a very intersectional philosophy. 
They, well, that's what they're hoping to find, right? That's what people are trying to build up. So at the municipal level, definitely, certainly municipal actors are talking about that in a big way. Yeah, ecological, so agroecology and the social justice aspects of all that for sure. But it's also at the international level that you heard talk a little bit about that too, from the La Via Campesina and other actors internationally as well, trying to break down the divisions between environmental protection versus challenging hunger versus economic growth in the agriculture sector and and trying to achieve all those three goals separately, separate actors, separate people, trying to bring them all together to come up with holistic plans that that provide some win-win-wins. And that was a little bit part of what the federal government was attempting to do in creating the new national food policy as well, trying to trying to deal with food insecurity and environmental sustainability and the needs of farmers and producers at the same time and the need for healthy and balanced food as well. So the health issues. That those are some of the things that that have been going on. I, I describe that as you know at least an optimistic development. No. Yes, definitely. The fact that th- there's so much action going on right now at the federal level is really exciting, and and many municipal areas. Well, not all, of course. There's been some some setbacks, for example, with sort of the the, the defunding of the Toronto Municipal F- uh, Food Policy Council, but that's hopefully short term. But uh, over the long term, I think there's a lot more interest. If, if the federal government certainly has done a lot in relation to food and been active on that file, and, and also as you say, a lot of the IPCC and international reports are really highlighting the fact that the, the bad news is that food systems can create havoc with the climate and the environment. But the good news is that tackling and, and sort of repairing our food systems and turning them toward more sustainable approaches is a, is a way to hugely improve climate change and environmental concerns. So it's a real area for opportunity to, to try to achieve a lot of the sustainability, the sustainable development goals, and a lot of other, as you say, social justice goals at the same time as the environment. So it is, we also had the recent report from the um, Eat Lancet Commission talking about the diet for planetary health, the idea that what's good for human bodies often, not always, but often are also things that are good for the planet, like more fruits and vegetables have most of the time a lower economic footprint and are also healthier for, for people. So there's some, seeing some of these linkages is is positive. That is, well, you know, it's uh, links in the chain, right? It's uh, yeah. obviously quite a vast overhaul. Mm-hmm. I just have kind of one more question about this and then would like to talk a little more about your uh, your personal work. But within the right to housing debate, for example, there's um, coalitions of cities. I, I want to say like in the right to housing one, I want to say it was either Madrid or Barcelona that kind of led this. Uh, but there's a lot of these municipal coalitions going on to try and bring together um, city, I, I want to say city administration to kind of deal with these problems in a more decentralized way. Do you think that is a viable solution going forward, or do you think that there's more of a central planning requirement to give? Yeah, I think on? that the, I think all levels have a role to play. I think that multi-level governance is a great idea. So, you know, I think there's so many important things to do at the municipal level. So much going on that the, the municipal government controls. For example, the current Ottawa municipal government is is undergoing a big planning uh, exercise right now that lasts for decades and so what they do with farmland and things like that is going to be hugely important but then all the way up to providing federal guidelines and guidance economic incentives things of that nature up through again international cooperation i think it's all really important is is it fair to say that cuz obviously this is show is made at least primarily for an audience of lawyers and prospective lawyers. Is it fair to say that um, at the municipal level, there is a greater chance of participation in the law for those who do not have uh, those credentials? That people at the municipal level can have a bigger impact on law, even even non-lawyers? 
Yes. Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, for those who are aware, I think sometimes we don't get to hear as much about what's going on sometimes at the smaller level. But yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of room for participation, for getting informed. The Ottawa Food Policy Council is a small organization that I'm a part of that tries to do a lot of policy work. And there's so many uh, municipal actors that are linked with the food system, depending on what your area of interest is in relation to food. So it is a really good way to get involved and and get, get things happening at the local level. And then hopefully those can have spin out effects, as we say, through networks and other things that that spread across to other cities through provinces and then sometimes can trickle upward to the to the federal and national level. I'm glad you mentioned the Ottawa Food Policy Council, because I did want to ask you about that. But first, I kind of want to trail back towards um, your sort of personal um, uh, work as as a lawyer and as as a legal educator. I just kind of like to ask sort of when and how you kind of formed the outlook you have towards uh, environmental law and towards ecology and law and how that is uh, sort of applied towards these goals. Sure. Well, in relation to the environment, I guess I took that course in in under in, 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 at law school. It was just one course that we took. And then uh, I did my master's at Cambridge University, and that's when I decided to really specialize in it. And I took as many courses as I could in relation to it. I wrote my sort of uh, big major research paper in relation to it. But then I, I also worked at Environment Canada just for about 18 months and started to learn more about how government works and the sort of policies and legislation and the different client groups and what what some of their challenges were. Uh, And then I decided to to focus on it for my PhD as well. But one of the best parts was being so lucky to be able to come and work at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law because we have such a huge wealth of environmental professors and colleagues and friends now, and that we all work together and inspire each other. And I've learned probably more just from all of my various colleagues and reading their work and working with them on various projects than I than I did in any of my education. So, especially with the very rapid development of this situation, like now, it, like regarding, of course, the pandemic, but also regarding the increased focus on global climate change, would you say that sort of discourse has escalated accordingly? Oh yeah, certainly. It's you know, it was one course that was certainly just an option to take at law school. I mean, while it's still true that it's not mandatory to take it in law school in Canada, which apparently I've heard it is mandatory, for example, in Chinese law schools to take an environmental law course. And of course, environmental law is just not one thing. We try to emphasize this that it's not people who are interested in the environment as opposed to everybody else. And if you're a real estate lawyer, you're probably going to deal with environmental issues. If you're a corporate lawyer, you're probably going to deal with sustainability, climate change issues. It's almost across the range of areas of practice. It's something that you will hopefully um, be trying to do something to to tackle and you'll certainly run into in some of uh, your files. Uh, but yeah, just the, the fact that there's about eight of us who are focused in that area. Certainly when I started, there was three or four for a long time. Professor Benedictson was the only one. And in many law schools across Canada, there's only one or two environmental law professors. So the fact that we have such a concentration here and that it's grown along with concern for the issue. Yeah, I think Ottawa U um, is, on, is on top of it. And the fact that we have the Institute for the Environment that's multidisciplinary. So we deal with colleagues um, from different disciplines to try to tackle this in, from, a, from an interdisciplinary perspective perspective because for example in my in my first year thematic climate change class we also have get a lot of guest speakers because I want the students to understand that climate change is a multidisciplinary issue and it's one thing to be a lawyer and read econo- the economics of climate change which is a good thing to do but I find it's even more useful to actually hear an economist explain what climate change is what the problem is and what some of the proposed solutions are from within 
economics and we hear from political scientists. We also have somebody from Carleton who comes to talk about psychology and climate change because lawyers need to know what kinds of things within law make people more inclined to want to comply or to get engaged with trying to tackle climate change as opposed to other styles of legislating or policy making that turn people off or overwhelm them and make them not want to to be involved. So the interdisciplinary approach that we take too, I think is really exciting. And lots of people obviously are aware that it's not going to be lawyers alone who solve climate change, but knowing what the role is that lawyers can play and the things that they bring to the table to try to help solve the problem of sustainability is uh, it's exciting. Okay. So kind of, kind of following up on that, uh, just, I, I kind of have to ask what is like sort of a skill in law that is kind of uniquely suited to deal with climate change? And what is one skill that needs to be incorporated into law to deal with climate change? Yeah. So I guess one of the things that was probably most clear, Professor Benedictson came to our climate change class and he was talking about when, when you go to international negotiation, uh, like COPs or conferences of the parties for the climate change agreement, lawyers, you know, people talk about all the various priorities and the issues, but lawyers are good at creating procedures and mechanisms to make things clear, to try to ensure representative participation, to try to capture what everybody said, to try to make sure that things can be transparent and that there can be consequences or follow-ups. So the sort of procedural aspect is something that lawyers can bring, the sort of clear thinking, clear expression of words. So that's something that's useful. And then I guess in a more substantive way that this idea of a focus on justice, the idea of a focus on fairness, legitimacy, these are things in these big negotiations, big treaty drafting, things that lawyers can be particularly useful at doing. And then sometimes people like EcoJustice, which who, who run our environmental law clinic at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law, it's the only other one in Canada other than at UVic that we have, we have, we're so unique to be able to offer students the opportunity to work at the environmental law clinic. And EcoJustice is the organization that takes on people's files and actually can bring an issue that's affecting perhaps large numbers of people, perhaps that wouldn't want to hire a lawyer on their own because the, it doesn't affect them individually sufficiently, but it's a huge concern to the public that you can, that organizations like EcoJustice can take on these public interest issues and take them to court and try to get actual action, get traction for some of these issues. For example, the litigation against the Ontario government for canceling the green plan of the former government. So actually taking action and hauling polluters or or government actors who are not guiding us in the direction of sustainability and actually bringing them to court and trying to have uh, concrete results. It's very interesting that uh, you mentioned eco-justice there because I've actually taken course with uh, Professor LG and um, I, I think that what you're saying is very interesting because it's uh, about in, in a lot of ways, acknowledging the public interest in it is, would you say it's fair to say that's acknowledging the actual, the externality and so the reality of, well, pollution, yes, but also like the, the things that cause climate change? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this idea of, of going backwards in terms of government policy in relation to sustainability at a time when, when most scientific experts are telling us that time is running out, that there should be consequences for that, uh, and that government has obligations and duties toward pub the public and citizens, as has been recognized in other countries, such as in the Netherlands in the Agenda case. Yeah, these are issues that, that are urgent. And so, although it's great to try to lobby for policy change, sometimes you just have have to get in court and try to get orders or concrete decisions or 
high financial penalties that are going to change behavior quickly. I was actually, that was actually going to be my follow-up question. Do you think it's a better option, a better, uh, not necessarily a better option because they're both equally valid, they're both equally useful, but from sort of a strategic perspective uh, for people who are interested in entering environmental law to focus on something like policy or precedent? Yeah, I think there's a role for both. It depends on what the issue is. That, that you'll probably after just one year of law school know that most answers are, it depends. Uh, I think that acting on all levels is extremely important, but as, as things become more urgent, I mean, certainly there's lots of delays and Court, and people know that sometimes defendants with big pockets can spend a lot of money, procedural wrangling and lots of delays that can make court proceedings slow as well. And sometimes government can react extremely quickly and make policy in a very responsive manner. So I think it, it, you know, both are valid. And what we try to teach students is to know in each circumstance, which one is going to be the most useful at the moment, or are you going to try both, but focus on one first and do the other over as a long-term strategy? I think that's something that we try to teach students in law school. With slaps and so forth, it's uh, as you're saying, the people with deep pockets have a bit of an adva- bit of a home field advantage in a lot of court proceedings. It seems. Yeah, and then there's tribunals as opposed to courts as well. So depend, you know, what, depending on their jurisdiction, but also the the rapidity of their responses sometimes can differ as well. So it's good to know all your options and to try to strategize as to which is going to be the most effective in the circumstance. And in sort of in your personal experience, having trained people to practice environmental law, is there a particular anecdote that really illustrates this process in action? Let me see. The people, you know, Professor Collins, Professor Ginsburg, Professor LG, they're better people to ask about this. They've done a lot more litigation on the ground. Professor Shalafor, many of our professors right now, several of the professors from the University of Ottawa Law School are working on uh, the carbon tax, the carbon pricing litigation right now and have been closely involved with that. And so they're seeing some good results, most of the, in everywhere except in Alberta to date. And so we're waiting. There, some of them are going to also be participating as interveners representing representing interveners before the Supreme Court of Canada. So that would be another good interview for you to ask them how they felt about that process. It would be the, uh, the Ottawa Ecology Law Series, I suppose. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it is a very broad ranging discipline, evidently. Like I, so I, I don't come from a science background and um, to sort of observe this, I have a dear friend who's a very, who's, who is an environmental scientist. And I remember uh, just sort of after the news about the IPCC report in 2018 broke, he was saying, yeah, you know, we've known this for a while, right? It's like when you see how big the iceberg is below the water. And it, it can be overwhelming uh, sometimes. I, I kind of want to ask about, um, like, personally, because you're very you're very involved in this field and you're very involved in a very, like, broad-ranging, like, in terms of intersectional ecology, there's definitely a, a huge spectrum of issues that come into play. Does it ever become... Um, like wearying or difficult? And if so, how do you um, how do you deal with that? Because I know a lot of people who are very burnt out, very anxious about the future, broadly. Right. Well, I think that looking for the wins, looking for the successes is a really important thing to do. I actually learned that a lot from uh, Professor Linda Collins. She teaches a course on happiness in the law, and she also created a course at Ottawa U called Legal Victories. She, she Her philosophy is that most of the time what we do in law school is say what what went wrong in the cases and analyze what went wrong and that the important thing to do is to teach people how to do it the right way. And so looking for the positive, looking for the wins, always trying to see the glass half full is one thing. So trying to keep a record, trying to notice when things are going well 
uh, when things are improving, you know, trying to take a slightly long-term view, although in climate change, that is getting harder with the, <laughs> the 10, 11 year window that they're giving us, but seeing the efforts that people are putting in, seeing, yeah, just trying to, to add up the victories and the successes and looking at past cases where we've had success in, in surprising or unique ways. Those are those. And then just, of course, talking to colleagues, having community, those are all important things that we do to try to, to try to keep energy up and keep going. That That's very reassuring to hear. Happiness in the law is a very interesting course. I'll have to look into that personally. And uh, again, just sort of uh, kind of loop back to intersectionality and especially to uh, ecofeminism as a term. Yeah. I, I understand that um, almost all of the composite terms in those things are very charged ter- terms and there are there's been a lot of bad faith construals about what they mean what would be your your personal definition of this and why would you say these terms are ill understood in the broader discourse ecofeminism yeah yeah that it's a, it's a very interesting area and again you see it a lot in many disciplines, but it's not it's not as prominent in law. Certainly, it wasn't until recently. Certainly, in, in Canadian law and, and legal analysis, but it is growing. People like Annie Rochette have written about it. Again, my PhD student Angela Lee is writes a lot about it. So the idea of ecofeminism is to use the insights of feminist legal analysis and feminist critiques, which try to look at what are the underlying forces that result in discrimination against women or devaluing of women or negative impacts on women and seeing if those same systems are the ones that create harm to the environment, discrimination against the environment, exploitation of the environment. And when you look at them, you see that many of them overlap, like industrialization, the drive for constant growth, the drive for profit over other types of of goals and benefits that we can try to achieve. And so what it does is try to shed light on the underlying drivers of sort of the global sustainability crisis. And then also, once again, try to come up with practical solutions that reduce these results, the intentional and unintentional results of these systems that we've built. So it leads, again, not only to uh, really insightful understandings of how our systems work, but then also, hopefully, collaborative engagement, as you said, interdisciplinary, interlocking engagement between feminists and ecologists and rights activists and, and, uh, you know, poverty scholars and all of these other kinds of scholars working together, demonstrating that some of the same causes result in all of these various problems and then also showing how putting energies together can maybe help us to solve some of them. And that collaborative energy certainly is quite heartening. That kind of harkens back to what we were talking about, about um, municipal organization a little earlier. Yeah. That all, that's, that's well, I guess that's why they call it uh, intersectionality. Four <laughs> years of public radio. <laughs> And just sort of as a, as a capper on this particular angle, in, in a very real and alarming sense, ecology, especially writings on ecology, have the tone of futurology, especially in uh, media a scientific pleb like myself would consume. I, I, I kind of want to ask what you think that those like these predictions mean for for the law, but also for the law's relation to society in the neck in the coming time. The idea that we're moving towards having to be more connected to the ecosystem in order to sort of survive and thrive. Yes, and also that's the one element, but also the unrest 
probably almost certainly entailed uh, in this process. And what is the role of law? Yeah. So some people, I guess from the academic perspective, which where, where I sit, is is there's been a lot of move toward changing the sort of the name of what we do from environmental law, which sounds like there's law and then there's the environment and the law can do something to the environment and moving toward what's called ecological law. Uh, there's been quite a growth in that area. There's a, several research groups working on that. People like Klaus Balselman and many others uh, have talked about ecological law. And what he says, for example, Balselman, is that ecological law the role of law is to try to achieve justice. And so we think that things that are fundamental to that are, you know, for example, basic human rights. But we can't have any of these things without a livable planet. And so the idea of protecting the ecosystem and protecting a livable planet should be one of the fundamental goals of law. Professor Collins talks about that as being an unwritten constitutional principle, for example, and there's lots of others, Cormac Collin and all these other people talking about wild law. So this idea that law is so interconnected to everything else, to the economic system, to the social system, that we really have to change how we go about it in order to make it work properly. We can't just have a piece of law called environmental law where we tinker with things at the margin of how factories put their outputs into the lake. We have to take much more transformative approaches. Uh, so green law, ecological law, those are some of the things that we're talking about. If you're talking about on a more practical level, like what should the Paris Agreement be doing in relation to potential violence and global conflicts and, and climate refugees and things like that, these are certainly things that international law is tackling, but not fast enough. And this is what we talk about a lot in my climate change class. First of all, as I said, we try to learn about what economics and political scientists think about climate change. But then we also look at all the various fields of law and to try to figure out which ones are, are helping and which ones are actually hindering and standing in the way of progress on climate change and sustainability. So what is it about international law? What is it about administrative and constitutional law that are helping or that are barriers to moving forward? So for example, this idea of the carbon pricing litigation, the fact that we've spent so much time, energy, and effort arguing about section 91 and 92 and who has jurisdiction to save the planet is something that might be hard to explain to future generations you know we really we really wanted to fix climate change but we couldn't because of our constitutional structure so if the law is standing in the way maybe these are some of the things that lawyers can do is try to change these legal barriers in some way that help us to get over these hurdles and not be part of the problem amen all right there, uh, Professor McLeod Kamari. It's um this has been very informative. I kind of want to close out the interview with more of a a little bit of a lighter question, but sort of um uh, there's a very excellent interview with you in the U Ottawa All uh, from a little while ago that that's the source of a lot of my uh, information for this. And that sort of mentioned, you know, in in addition to your uh, studies of the law that you've uh, enjoyed like sort of studying languages, playing guitar a little bit. I'm just wondering if there's a personal panacea you can recommend sort of that uh can help either people kind of connect a little more with um, their fellow humans or just kind of take it a little easier in light of um, happenings. Well, yes, I've been trying. It's a very good uh, moment to be asking that during this time of being locked up. I mean, I think one thing is just trying to see what you can do to help other people. That can often help to feel better. What's a small thing that you can do to try to help others that takes the focus off 
perhaps some of your own concerns or worries. But then what you, easy, free, accessible things that you can easily do at home and there, there's nothing uh, earth shattering, just a little yoga, a little meditation, talking to friends, reading great books, getting some exercise. Those are things that I think have become just so much more obviously important at this time when you, you do have time to stop and pause. Maybe you do have an extra half hour where you intend to do your yoga every day, but you don't have time. And now we actually do. And just really noticing the difference that some of these um, mechanisms for slowing down and being more present, how much they can help with mood and perspective and things of that nature. And I just think also, again, this horrible pandemic is certainly nothing that anybody would ever wish for, but seeing how quickly people have mobilized to help each other, just seeing how willing all of the medical and other people, the grocery store workers are to, to do their part, how, how willing people have been to, to stay inside and to think about neighbors and how many, you know, FaceTime calls and personal keeping in touches, uh, just calling people that you mean to call all the time and you never get around to it. It, it, just, it just really brings a lot of hope in terms of responding to crisis. This is an emergency, but the, the, the climate change is perhaps a little bit slower. But I think uh, many in the environmental community are saying that it's not at all great that this has happened. Nobody is suggesting that, but just saying, given that this has happened, look at the example that we see about what people can do. And of course, shutting down the economy and putting people out of work is not the answer to sustainability. But the fact that we are thinking and finding ways to try to come up with solutions when it's urgent, and maybe uh, this will give us some examples of hopeful, feasible, long-term solutions to help us deal with the longer slow burn of, of climate change. We can only hope. I think that's a good takeaway from this. Thank you very much there, Professor McLeod Kilmurray. If, um, if anybody's interested in taking one of your courses, where, where, can they, uh, where can they find them? What can they search up? Oh, absolutely. So if you just search, just email me anytime. I'm always happy to talk to potential students. I, I teach food law, climate change law. I always teach a small group torts. It, it varies from year to year. Sometimes I teach admin too, but I would love for anybody to, I guess, normally drop by my office. But right now, I guess that means just send me an email or, and I'm happy to call you and even just have a, have a chat to help you explore all the various courses that will, that might be of interest and, and of use. Tremendous. Good idea for, well, hopefully for next year. Yeah, that would be terrific. Have a good day, Professor McLeod Kimari. I've been Jake Clark, and to all those who tuned in, thank you for listening. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.